Okay, welcome, welcome. I am two inches from my mic and I'm eating my mic, but not quite, because today we're going to talk about the seven domains of food. Food is an incredibly powerful motivator to more than just Labrador retrievers. Everybody thinks about food on occasion, and all religious holidays and cultural holidays are surrounded by food or by fasting and then surrounded by food. So food has a powerful role in our life for health, for illness, uh, for our spiritual lives, for our emotional lives. And just to lighten it up a little bit when we're talking about hard things, we've got a few little light things from the Muppets from Sesame Street. Hey, food, when we feel bad, we chew on a piece of bread or some veggies or a raspberry tart, and then we start to feel much better. So here's a little story about food and family. My mother was a great cook, and she cooked in German, and she cooked in Mexican, and she cooked in American. Uh, she didn't really cook in Asian, but because she'd lived in those countries, she was a really good cook. And she passed down some of her recipes, but all important dates and I love you was said in food. And she passed on this interest in food to her four children, and we are all highly food motivated. When we get together, all we do is talk about food, food we're going to eat, food we did eat, the best food we ever ate. And it's hard for people sitting at the dinner table who were not food motivated, and that would include my husband, whose family is not food motivated, and neither is he. So those of us who eat to live, and that would be my husband. And those of us who live to eat, and that would be me. And in every family, food means something different. But as we're trying to grow our children and trying to feed our grandchildren, nutrition takes our focus from just any food that is yummy to something that's good for us. And we're going to be talking about that in some more detail, about food that's yummy versus food that's good for us, and maybe food that's a little bit of both. Today, in the seven domains of women's health, we're talking about what I perceive as being the ultimate woman's domain, food. Now, that doesn't mean that men don't eat food because we know they do. And it doesn't mean they don't cook food or shop for food because we know they do. But in fact, often, at least in our culture, women make the decisions. They plan the menus. They have a kid who only eats white food, and then they've got a kid who won't eat that, and they have a kid who's allergic to this, and the husband who's a meditarian, and they might be snacking on the food they make for everyone, so by dinner time they are all full. Food is the woman's domain, so today I am lucky enough to be in the studio with nutritionist. Carrie Woodruff is a registered dietitian, a clinical dietitian. That means not just talking about food, but clinically thinking about food, an assistant professor here at the University of Utah about food and nutrition. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. Now, here comes the big question. Yes. What did you have for breakfast? Oh, I'm a creature of habit, right? So for me, I grab what's quick and easy, but some iteration of uh, Greek yogurt and granola or oats and some fresh fruit. It's quick. It's easy. I can. It's portable. So, oh, yeah. 
I just Googled last night whether you could make overnight oats with steel-cut oats, which are my favorite oats, given that I yeah. don't really like oats or breakfast. But I'm going to be a new woman. I'm okay. going to be a new woman, and I'm going to have something easy. And steel-cut oats, cooking them can take a half an hour. But if Correct. I soak them, I think I can do it overnight. Yeah, well, you'll have to let me know. Well, you know, in your clinical work, thinking about the health aspects or the physical aspects of the seven domains, there are people who have to eat certain things or have to not eat certain things. And those would be diabetics or people with liver failure or maybe some people with an odd genetic disease like phenylketonuria. So Mm -hmm. tell me about some of the work you do with people who have to eat certain things or not eat certain things. Oh, sure. So there are individuals, for example, um, like you identified PK, someone who has a diagnosis of PKU, phenylketonuria, they need to avoid anything that has phenylalanine in it. That's a basic amino acid that all of us need, supposedly. Right. Um, So, and it's in everything, isn't it? Correct. Yep. Well, all all protein foods. And so it's really a diet comprised of um, refined carbohydrates and and really sugar containing foods. And so they rely upon dietary supplements to make sure that they're able to meet their dietary needs for, That's for a vitamins. Tough diet. Oh, it's very tough. Yep. And, and people with liver failure aren't supposed to eat a lot of protein, right? Yeah. Depending upon their stage of liver failure. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Or even with kidney disease and stage renal disease, they need to be cognizant of their protein intake, depending upon their stage of dialysis or form right. of dialysis as well. Right. Um, but yeah, you know, what I find is clinically, there are very few patients who, in a medical setting, really don't have some sort of dietary um, implication of their disease, right? right? So it could be more mild or moderate. It could be more extreme. But so many of our body systems are impacted by the foods that we eat and the nutrients that we consume. And so to some degree or another, almost any medical condition may necessitate some sort of adjustment or tweaking with our diets. Yeah, when I have a dinner party or invite people over, or having people stay, I now automatically in my emails say, are there any food preferences? Because more and more people say, I'm allergic to this, this, and this. And gosh, I'm an omnivore. I was eating dirt before I ate food. I mean, I was raised in my early years just after weaning were in Mexico, in a mining camp in Mexico. So I probably was eating dirt. But I didn't know that people could be so allergic to food. And what are these food allergy things? And what's a food allergy versus a food preference or... With that, I'm going to clump sort of perceived allergies. So a diagnosed allergy is an immunologic, an allergic response. An immuno, the body's immunologic immune system, response. Yeah, the body's <laughs> right. immune system is responding to that specific antigen. And so in that case, that person does need to eliminate the food from their diet because if not, that could result in maybe mild symptoms of rich, uh, itchy, rashy skin or very severe symptoms of right. anaphylaxis, which can be life-threatening. Right, so anaphylaxis is when people... Their throat closes and they mm-hmm. can't take a deep breath and they mm-hmm. can't breathe. So they can have hives or they can have difficulty breathing or feeling like their mouth is getting swollen. And exactly. those are scary things. Absolutely. But then there are people who say, oh, no, I've got, you know, I'm allergic to this, that and the other. And sure. so I always ask as a, as a clinician, what happens when you eat that? So a lot of times there are perceived allergies. Mm-hmm. And by that, it could be a, an intolerance. So a very common example would be um, gluten intolerance. Now, there is a condition called celiac disease, which is an autoimmune disorder whereby the body, the, the consumption of gluten, which is a protein type in, in wheat, 
born, uh, wheat, barley, and rye. And upon consumption of that food causes damage to our gastrointestinal system. But a lot of times there are also individuals who, and, and we do see a strong crossover with irritable bowel syndrome mm-hmm. and non-celiac gluten sensitivity or this perceived gluten intolerance. And when I say perceived, it, it can be real. The, the challenge is we don't have good diagnostics for it. So um, we don't have a test to say, yes, you are gluten intolerant, other than to say, well, if you eliminate gluten from your diet and you notice an improvement in symptoms and right. that, you know, that becomes more of a diagnosis of elimination. Um, but some individuals really do seem to be more sensitive to gluten. The challenge is, you know, is some of the studies when they compare, if you actually do a placebo controlled study, um, if someone thinks that they're consuming gluten, they may often report the same symptoms, even right. if they're actually were not gluten in the food. Some degree of bloating is normal when we consume food and some degree of <laughs> just feeling of fullness, right, is very normal. And especially Fiber is contained in many yeah. um, healthful sources of, yeah. of wheat. And so some of that can just be normal digestion. But I think there's a little bit of media hype around bloating and distension that we've almost become potentially some individuals a little hypersensitive to that. Well, the and word s- bloating is I make a joke about this on this particular podcast because I've never heard a man, at least not a man who was older than 30 ever use that word, whereas women use that word, oh, I feel bloated, or Mm -hmm. oh, I eat that and I feel bloated, or I eat this and I'm six months pregnant, and Mm -hmm. every beer would make me bloated, and guys Mm -hmm. drink beer and their bellies stick out, and they would never say, I feel bloated, because that's such a girl thing to say. Yes, for absolutely. So so I want to emphasize that there are individuals who experience gluten intolerance. There is also, though, a, um, a certain population that may not actually have what we would consider to be gluten intolerance. It's more just normal feelings of digestion along with some inaccurate messaging around gluten-containing foods. And so then they sort of self-diagnose and take themselves off of gluten. So it depends upon how they approach that diet, so to speak. Well, I think about uh, lactose intolerance Mm -hmm. because that's so interesting. It's a racial, Mm -hmm. uh, has racial prevalence in the sense that people who evolved and I think of Northern Europeans mm-hmm. who evolved as they, we moved out of Africa and moved north and then had the choice and the ability to farm. And then we had the ability to have dairy in our diet. Mm-hmm. So people who are Northern European often eat dairy throughout their entire lives and it makes a significant amount of their calories. Mm-hmm. Whereas people who are Asian and African, they they have they lose their ability to mm-hmm. drink milk and they so they really are lactose intolerant. Makes them makes Correct. them pretty uncomfortable. Yeah, and you know the nice thing with lactose intolerance is that it's it's for most individuals it's not an all or nothing diagnosis. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that's I think refreshing to know that even someone with lactose intolerance maybe they can't eat the large bowl of ice cream, which can be fairly disappointing. I get that. Um, <laughs> but but they could consume small to moderate amounts of lactose without symptoms. Right. Um, so, you know, things, especially foods like cultured yogurt products, yogurt or kefir can be better tolerated because it actually has some of the bacteria to help it to be digested. Mm-hmm. Um, and those foods are high in calcium, high in protein. Some of them are high in vitamin D. So they can be very nutrient dense foods. Now, again, someone can be healthy without consuming any form of lactose. Or well, even I think of dairy. Asia, where, where drinking dairy or cheese is mm-hmm. not a big part 
of their diets. Think about East Asians. Mm -hmm. They just don't, it isn't a big part of their diet. And they manage to make strong bones and they manage to be smart. But there's so many other factors in those lifestyles, right? Like they probably are much less sedentary and they consume lots more fruits and vegetables and And, and maybe a higher consumption of soy. Mm -hmm. And so it it gets a little complicated. But yes, um, you know, 70% of the population here in the United States does experience some degree of what we call hypolactasia or decreased lactase levels as we get older. And so decreasing our consumption of lactose in those instances is appropriate. And luckily, there are also lots of lactose-free options as well. Yeah, well, so as a, as a hostess and as a cook, I want people to come to my table. My table food is love because that was my upbringing. Food is love. I want them to be completely comfortable with what I offer. Mm-hmm. I don't want, you know, part of me wants to say, oh, you know, come on, just, you mean you can't eat my vegetarian lasagna? But my goal is to make everyone's honor everyone's dietary preferences mm-hmm. which Absolutely. can be an emotional choice it can be a spiritual choice mm-hmm. meaning people who've made either a religion their faith uh, demands that they not eat meat mm-hmm. um or they can't eat certain kinds of meat i think of religions and i i think of islam and i think of judaism where mm-hmm. they can't or don't eat pork and shellfish there are some reasons some people have epidemiologists, epidemiologists and anthropologists have said, well, here are the reasons that people don't eat pork and don't eat mm-hmm. fish. But I want to make people comfortable at my table. Absolutely. You work in the hospital. You have people who say, I can't eat this because of my faith or I'd prefer not to eat that. Yes, absolutely. And, and it, it absolutely depends upon the specific faith. So, for example, someone who is Jewish and they follow the kashrut um, would dictate that they don't to um, animals that actually chew their cud or that have, I think, split hooves is what the Bible says. Mm. Right. So in those instances, they would not eat cow um, products. Mm -hmm. And so pork would not be allowed because um, of the split hooves. No, because they chew their cud. Oh, do they? Mm -hmm. I don't. Yeah. I've never bought pork in my adult life. Except in the form of bacon. Then bacon's not pork. Bacon is bacon. It's its own food group. It's its own food group. And then they would not eat shellfish because it doesn't have both fins and scales. So that's in accordance with the kashrut, which is um, provided by the Bible in the Old Testament. And so those dietary practices are followed by members of the Jewish faith. Um, Uh Now, someone, for example, who is Hindu, they're going to follow the do no harm principle. And so for them, they may choose to be vegetarian or vegan, depending upon their personal preference and their interpretation of that principle. And so they may limit their intake of animal foods or or omit them altogether. And that's out of the principle of doing no harm to other um, organisms, to other animals. And so it does depend upon the specific faith as to what foods might be not allowed and and why, but many different religions do have specific dietary principles. Right, right. You know, when I think about the environmental effects of the food choices we make, so the environmental domain of the seven domains, mm-hmm. there are now, the WHO came out and said if the planet ate less meat, mm-hmm. we would have less carbon dioxide. It would be yep. a healthier planet. Yep. So some of the choices we make actually affect our environment, just in terms of the food choices that we make. Yep. So we know that, for example, the production of meat results in greater carbon emissions, for example. Yes. Um, And then also the input. So the amount of water, for example, that's part of the food manufacturing 
um, system of producing meat is much greater than for plant right. sources of protein, for example. In terms of trees, I think of what's happening in Brazil. Mm-hmm. Do you have to burn down the rainforest so you can make places where cows can graze? Because mm-hmm. they don't yep. graze on the rainforest. Well, it becomes difficult. So here's a question. Can a vegan be happily married to a meditarian? How does that work out? Yes. Well, there are there are obviously going to be some, I guess, um, ethical implications of that as to why someone following a vegan lifestyle out of what principle. And if it's for um, treat, you know, how the animals are treated, that might there might be some ethical tensions there from a health perspective. Um, I think they can coincide. Um, Michael Pollan says it best. He says, eat foods, mostly plants, not too much. And whether you consume some meat as part of that dietary approach can still fit into a plant-based diet. Plant-based diet is sort of a catch-all phrase, but it's a diet that subsists of mostly plants, but sure, maybe some chicken or or other environmentally um, sort of sustainable forms of protein are included in that and yet still be a plant-based diet. So for example, if you have that sort of meditarian married to someone with a following a vegan dietary approach, you know, is your plate mostly going to be plant sources? And maybe the person consuming meat sometimes has some chicken on their plate as their protein source and the person who's following a vegan dietary approach has tofu instead. But if the bulk of the diet is going to be fruits and vegetables and nuts and seeds and legumes and other healthy plant-based sources, um, then I think having a little bit of meat in there can still work. Now, if the plate is mostly meat, right, and and few vegetables, um, that can be a little more challenging. But I think it, it, it certainly can exist harmoniously just depending on how it's as long as it's, it's done with done. honor as long as the each honors mm-hmm. the other's choices and supports them within the, the as best they can i mean some people roll their eyes and look you know become accusatory whether they're there's no there's no protein in there you're getting wasting away to nothing or look you've just got a dead cow or whatever it is that it doesn't help when people don't honor someone else's choices. Well, it can be, it can come across as being very judgmental. Yes. And that's where there can be some tension. Right. Well, while we're talking about meat, so someone who's dieted since I was 15 and oh, I've been through all the little diets at one time or another. But right now, um, I'd say the keto, paleo, in some of the diets, there is a lot of protein and there's some downsides to eating more than, you know, 80 or 90 grams of protein a day or 100. However, there must be an upper number at which point your kidneys are asked to do more than they really want to in terms of clearing protein? Oh, absolutely, especially if someone's at risk of of poor kidney health. Um, And I think more than just the detriment to our kidneys, though, is that a dietary approach that's very high in protein um, may also be high in fats. We see that, for example, the Atkins diet. The other risk, though, is that if you're consuming that much animal products and you're not consuming enough of all the other really healthful dietary sources of fiber and vitamins and minerals like fruits and vegetables and whole grains. Um, those are also really important for our diets and well, for nutrients. So let's talk about Princess Cat Kate and the Dukin diet or so there's this diet, the Dukin diet, you might know of this Mm-mm. is very popular in um, in some circles. Well, it's the periodic fasting. Oh, so is it intermittent fasting? It's the intermittent fasting. Okay. That's now become quite popular. Absolutely. And that yep. actually makes since to me, based on how we evolved to eat, we evolved, I think, not having a refrigerator full of yummies that we could eat on every couple hours. We might have had things that we ate every couple hours, but there we had lots of time when we didn't have food. 
I will propose sort of another um, vantage point of that, which is metabolically, there are some advantages to the intermittent fasting approach. Now, keep in mind, intermittent fasting is a catch-all phrase. There are so many different ways right. to approach that. So it could be alternate day fasting. It could be uh, limited hour fasting. So eating for eight hours a day, fasting for 16 hours. So there's lots of different iterations of it. And yes, evolutionarily, our bodies have evolved to go through periods of time where they didn't have food. But here's where my bias as an eating disorder dietitian oh, comes in. Yes, so yes. what happens, though, when we don't have food? That's, you mean other than I get hangry and I get pretty cranky? Right, right. <laughs> and then from an evolutionary standpoint, our bodies have evolved to prompt us to think about food. That sort of concept of deprivation can really result in um, the opposite end of the spectrum of thinking about it all the time and seeking it out and can result in binging. Right. So from sort of a medical and metabolic standpoint, it can work. And for some people, it's very sustainable. They don't experience any any of these sort of increased thoughts and fixations on food. But for some individuals, they find that restriction of intermittent fasting can really exacerbate or worsen one's relationship with food and can prompt some unhealthy thoughts as well. That's brilliant. That just leads into my next thought. And that is, what is the best diet for weight loss? I think that people have different attitudes about food and the best weight loss diet. What would you say is the best weight loss diet? And then I'll tell you what I think as an OBGYN. I love this conversation. So um, more and more we're learning diets don't work in terms of long-term studies of how effective they are. Now, short-term, three, six months, people may lose weight. Um, 90 to 95% of individuals gain the weight back. 60% of those individuals will gain even more weight back. Long-term, now we're talking three, five or more years out. Um, so that's the challenge. And and my whole sort of um, the way that I look at it is the whole thought of going onto a diet is that eventually we're going to go off of a diet. And so if what we're doing is something that is viewed to be temporary, even though there's sort of this wellness culture that now is putting everything as a lifestyle, but cutting out so many food groups like the ketogenic diet, for very few people, that's actually a lifestyle and it really is more a, a diet. And then when they go off of that approach, they then resume their, their previous dietary habits. Now, I've, I've met a handful of individuals who have tried the ketogenic diet. They have found it to be sustainable for them and for them it works, right? And they're a couple years into this approach and for them it works. But for many people, I find that they go on to it. They then eventually go off of it because what do you do for social situations? What do you do if you're raising kids and you're in a family context? And then that can sometimes result in binging and, and other unhealthful dietary sort of consequences of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's the best diet? I, I really have come back to sort of my catchphrase, not my catchphrase, I'm certainly not going to claim credit for this, but a balanced moderation variety as an approach to food. Um, and I really like Michael Pollan's tagline of eat foods, mostly plants, not too much, and really just focusing on increasing the healthful components of our diet, decreasing some of the, what I call foreign substances, foods, are, foods that our bodies are not used to consuming. So the more processed foods, just trying to, as much as we can, eat more naturally based foods, um, but also acknowledging lifestyle doesn't always allow for that. So we um, non-judgmentally, you know, allowing ourselves convenience when needed, um, but really balance variety and moderation. And it's not very sexy. It's not very exciting, but it, it really is how we can sustain a healthful relationship with food and try and sustain our health. Yeah. I would tell people that if you read the contents of what you're eating, and so if you're buying something that's been processed, that's been packaged, they have to tell you what's in it. And if you can't pronounce it, I know that's not a good sign. Not that I understand because you're out 
and you don't always get a chance to see what was in the food that was prepared for you or but in general um trying to eat as close as you can to things as they came out of the ground would be helpful yes and i always say to someone you know start where you're at how many fruits and vegetables are you eating now can you add in an extra serving every day how often are you eating fish? Could you try and work up to once a week? And so it's just stepwise changes that we can make mm-hmm. that will still be meaningful and significant. So help me here a little bit. What were the what were the food do's and don'ts that you grew up with? So you are you look to me like me. You look like you're an Anglo-Saxon, mm-hmm. probably Scottish, Irish, German background, but maybe you've been in this country for five generations. But mm-hmm. so tell me about what your food styles were in your family of origin? Sure. So my parents both worked full time. And so for us, there was less less of a sort of traditional food pattern that my parents were carrying on and it was more getting food on the table. So we had a lot of tater tots and food from a can, Stouffer's, uh, mac and cheese, uh, Kraft macaroni and cheese, hot dogs, French fries. So not <gasps> wow. Uh, very few vegetables, very few fruits. My mom didn't like fruits or vegetables, and therefore neither did we. And then it wasn't until I became a high school and then college athlete that I started to pay more attention to my food and how that made me feel and how that impacted my performance. And What's so that was sport? sort of my gateway into sport and nutrition. Yeah, um, sport? I was a rower in high <gasps> school and college. Whoa! So I haven't seen you stand up yet to see how tall no, you are. No, I was a lightweight rower. Oh yeah, because so, yep, you don't yep. look like the kind of ro- I'm not six feet tall. Big rower. Nope, nope. So I was a lightweight rower, and so we had to be very careful with what yeah. we were eating. Yeah, and, um, pumping out more weight. calories per unit of time than any other sport, except maybe cross country skiing. Yes, yep, it's exactly. Huge but we also had sort of this because of the weight emphasis, and it was a group average. Group average. So I rode with seven <gasps> yeah. other rowers, yeah. and we had to make an average weight. So even if if one of us was at the right weight, we all had to lose weight to make the boat average. So yeah. there was sort of that tricky dynamic with that. Did um, that lead to eating disorders? Well, that was why I initially went to do a master's in sports psychology. Was I wanted to understand what sort of what were some of the differentiating factors between athletes who would engage in these pathological behaviors and go on to develop an eating disorder versus individuals who would engage in these behaviors for their sport, but then after out of season they'd go on to resume very healthy relationships with food. So, what sort of were those differentiating features? Right. There's some sports that require the body to look a certain way, and when I think mm-hmm. of the anorexic patients, patients with eating disorders that I saw because as a reproductive endocrinologist mm-hmm. they'd come to me because they didn't sure. have periods yep. they were dancers uh, some distance runners um, and uh, of course gymnasts yep. because absolutely. they were told body shamed absolutely that they had to be a certain size yes. to perform so um, that was sort of my initial um, entry into food. And then now as a mother of two little girls, and, and as someone who does specialize in the treatment of eating disorders, I am very conscientious, 100% of the time, of how can I help to cultivate a healthy, balanced relationship with food with my girls. And that's, you know, that's probably one of the biggest reasons why I'll never do a fad diet myself, because I don't. I, I personally don't want my daughters growing up with a mother who says, oh, bread is bad or this is bad. You yeah, know, in our yeah. in our house, we have everyday foods. So the foods like fruits and vegetables and proteins and um, dairy and um, healthy fats, those are our everyday foods. And then we have our sometimes foods, which will be the sweets and treats and snacks. 
And so instead of saying a good a food is good or bad and, and moralizing it, it's not that the apple is morally good and the chocolate cake is morally bad. Um, the chocolate cake can be just as good or good for us sometimes as the apple is. And so it's just recognizing that there are, we have our everyday foods and then we have our sometimes foods and trying yeah. not to moralize it. Yeah. And that's that's what we try and do in our house. My mother was a dental hygienist and she went to um, the Tufts Dental School for hy- for dental hygiene. And she had a ton of nutrition because Tufts mm. was a big center for nutrition. Yes. So we had breakfast, lunch, and dinner. She's the person who, when she made a sandwich with peanut butter and jelly, she stuck cottage cheese in there, which we <laughs> thought was kind of, well, well, we were used to it, but our other friends. And the filling had to be more than the bread, the fill, whether it was tuna or whatever. And dinner always had two veg, mm-hmm. two veg That's protein. Awesome. I mean, she was religious about it. So if my dinner didn't have two veg, then there was something, the plate looked weird. Yep. Um, you know, my girls know, right? They're six and eight, and they know if, if they're going to make their own lunch, for example, they need to have a protein source, they need to have a whole grain source, and they need to have a fruit or a vegetable, and, and usually both. Um, and then the rule in our house is, and, and I'm not a short order cook, right? So I don't cook one thing for my husband and I and something different for my girls. I cook one meal, and they have to have one bite of everything. And then if they don't like it, then they can go make themselves some peanut butter toast, right. like a neutral food. Right. Well, it's hard to do the right thing, but the good news is there's so many ways to do the right thing. Yes, there's no one one right way. Right. I think the fabulous thing about living in a multicultural society is how many fabulous flavors we have. Mm -hmm. And But actually looking at the way the grandmothers of our multicultural societies cook, whether it's Indian or whether it's Middle Eastern or whether it's Mexican or whether it's... Asian, Asian, or if it's Native American. Mm -hmm. You take a look at the way the grandmothers cook, that gives us a view of probably a healthier way to eat. Absolutely. They are preparing foods that are minimally processed, foods that lots of chopping and cutting up of vegetables as a good base and whole grains, and, and really sticking to foods that have been around for thousands of years. Well, that's, that's my pitch for keeping grandmothers healthy. (laughs) Yep. So thanks for joining us. And remember that as we're thinking about every holiday from spring, summer, and fall, and winter is marked by the food that we share. This is so much part of the social domain, the emotional domain, the physical domain, of course, the financial domain for some, and the spiritual domain. We're grateful that you joined us and join us again wherever you get your podcasts so that we can carry on our thoughts about the seven domains of women's lives. And we're going to leave you with a little haiku. Food is personal. You don't like stuffing or sprouts? Well, hey, don't yuck my yum. For those of you who have no idea the last line of that haiku, I was driving along the road and I heard it on the news someone was talking about food and how some people like some food and some people say oh that's yucky and then they said hey don't yuck my yum and that's exactly what it is when people say oh that's yucky and you think it's yummy i don't want someone to yuck my yum i don't want someone to diss my food so there you go don't yuck my yum